Welcome back to the Millennial Sales Podcast, y'all. This is your host, Tommy Tahoe Alemo. This is the show where young salespeople go to up their game. I'm pumped for today's interview this Wednesday with my man, Sam Silverman. Let me tell you about Sam Silverman. Sam uh, has been in sales for about six, seven years now, started as an SDR at Kite Desk, where he was just smashing SDR records, went to be an SDR at Outreach, which uh, you know, as a lot of us know, is is really the place or one of the places to go be an SDR. Smashed more records there for about a year. Went over to Live Person uh, as the director of sales development. Got promoted to senior director of and global head of sales development, and now is the VP of sales at Promet. Excuse me, VP of sales at Prometric. He's also the founder of Silverman Capital, which helps. Uh, sophisticated investors passively invest in multifamily apartments to generate cash flow and build wealth. So this is a two-part type of interview. We've got one where Sam has clearly broken down the mold for how to be a successful sales development rep and sales development leader. Very, very important to be talking about. There's another part where Sam has built this foundation uh, in this business around real estate investing. We talked about this on this podcast that salespeople, we have a huge fluctuation in potentially what we can earn and what we will earn. And uh, that that growth can come super fast as we get promoted from SDR to AE to manager or, or enterprise AE. I mean, we're talking, you know, we could go from 50K to 500K in a matter of years uh, for some people. So that's a lot to do. And we don't get educated uh, from a financial standpoint very well. So uh, Sam is coming here to in yeah, to you know, really help educate me in the real estate lens. I don't know much about it, and I'm glad that he came in to, uh, to show me the ropes and teach me a lot. So I think you're going to like this episode. Let me just hit you with 19 seconds of something. Uh, hopefully, that will help all of us. Uh, wherever you're listening, please subscribe. YouTube, Spotify, Apple. Um, like, subscribe. Leave a review if you can. Should only take you a minute. Uh, and then follow me on LinkedIn, Tom Malamo. I work over at Gong. All of that helps to grow this show. It helps to get better guests, create better content for you. And it would make me a little bit happier uh, than I am right now. So thank you for that. Let's get into my interview with Mr. Sam Silverman. Let's go. All right. Next up on the podcast, we got Sam Silverman. Sam, what's happening, man? Tom, how's it going? It's going well. I'm uh, I'm out here in beautiful Indianapolis, uh, about to get the snowmageddon. They're calling it that. I know the new, that the Northeast just got so uh, ready to get snowed in and just work on the podcast. I guess. How about you? There you go. Yeah, we we, we had our annual cold front in Tampa, so it woke up and it was you know 35, 40 the last few days, and people absolutely freak out. <laughs> right when you've seen things sub sixty, people have full parkas and hats and gloves and. Um, now it's back to normal, right? I think we're in the seventies today again. So we get our two brief weeks of winter and we're back to being overly hot again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are you, I, I don't think you're, I, I'm not sure if you're from there, but are you a Bucks fan, a Tampa Bucks fan? So I'll watch football. I'm not a huge football guy, honestly. I'm a yeah. diehard Knicks Yankees fan. So I grew up oh, in okay. Brooklyn, New York, um, football more so Bucks than Giants or Jets, just because I started watching more so being down here. Um, but I'm not a huge football fan or football enthusiast. Like I, I'll watch it if it's on, but I don't follow uh, religiously at all. Yeah. Knicks, the Yankees, though, I rarely miss a game. Uh, yeah. My girlfriend knows way too much about those teams just because it's <laughs> on our house originally every day. So, I mean, between those two sports, you don't miss many months of, of action. Uh, like it's it's pretty much covers all 12 months. I was asking because I'm a I'm a Boston guy and a diehard Pats fan, and so seeing. TB12, uh, hang up the cleats. Uh, as of yesterday, uh, I didn't know if that was uh, affecting you at all, but it's definitely affecting me. It's, it's affecting my performance today. I just want to let everyone know I might not be as sharp on my game because uh, Tom Brady is, has officially retired. Yeah, he definitely, definitely had, had a good run. They're all the memes now of Aaron Rodgers doing the same thing, um, <laughs> especially with the, the, the vaccine mandates and just Florida being – you know, very, very open relative to other places, you know, like Boston or, or places in California or New York. We're looking at how they've handled COVID. 
Um, so I can definitely see a situation like that panning out well as well. You're saying people are saying he's going to go down to Tampa? I mean, after all the vaccine mandate stuff, potentially. Yeah. Um, when you look at the that. last two years, Tampa's a top few place to be right now. It's Florida, Phoenix, right? Areas that have a little more leniency, um, a little more scientific back data. We can get into that too if you want, but um, <laughs> yeah. Tampa, just while we're on the topic of Tampa, what, what, what is it like down there? Because I see... I am seeing more like tech companies put hubs down there. Like I think Outreach did, Seriously. I think I think maybe Drift did. I feel like I've seen a handful of others. And to me, it just- So you're seeing no, a lot of, yeah. of companies now have an office or kind of like an HQ2 in Tampa, in St. Pete, which is about a half an hour from downtown Tampa. Yeah. We're seeing a ton of development here, right? Like if you look at it, kind of going from, you know, take, take, take the bets recruiting compensation scale. Right. You like you had, you know, tier one cities, right? Your California's your New York or San Francisco's like areas like that, your tier two cities of like or tier one B being like Boston and Seattle and places that were kind of like range of compensation. And then kind of like Carolina's and Austin, like a tier three city. Tampa wasn't even on the map at all. Right. You know, this is five years ago. Now I'd say we're borderline a tier two city in terms of the growth we've seen. Like you look at Florida the last year, we've had 250,000 people move here in terms of uh, their residency in the U.S., the highest in any state per capita. And then you also look at just Tampa in general, I think about 200 people or so a day moving to Tampa MSA. So we've seen you know, real estate prices go through the roof. We've seen rents go up in an insane way. Um, but I think the you know infrastructure here is starting to become more and more developed which is awesome just because personally I have no desire to leave here. And it's nice that it's becoming more and more of a city, especially being from New York, which I'm sure you're familiar with Boston. Like there is everything you want within, you know, a few mile radius of where you are. Um, so Tampa's not anywhere near there yet, but it's definitely becoming more and more of an actual city versus a, you know, retiree type town, which people thought of it as, you know, when I first came down here 10 years ago. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I feel like there's a number of, of those types of cities that have been popping up in the last like, really in the last, I feel like five years, but especially with COVID. Um, so it's great to see the expansion down there. That's exciting. You're ahead of the curve. Um, so I want to get into I want to get into a few things with you. I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about, you know, what you're doing in, in real estate and investing and things like that. But I do want to give a baseline of your sales career. Um, and it looks like you've <laughs> I mean, you've grown you know, title wise, just up the ranks so quickly. I'm curious, like, I think your first job was an SDR at, at outreach at a school, if I'm not mistaken. So I'd love to just hear like, second why job, you got yeah, so a second, second job. Uh, my, my first job was I applied on a job board accidentally to like a super small startup base in Tampa. Okay. Um, and luckily it's, you know, 30 ish people give or take at its peak, super small, like the epitome of a startup company. You think of it, right. People were, you know, going out Friday for drinks midday, people were wearing gym shorts, right? Like it was a very, very startup type place. But I think the big benefit there was that the executive team had a ton of experience in exits, right? So it's more of like a passion project for them, which like to, to, you know, I credit a lot of this to my first CEO. I've now worked for him three times. Um, I would live in that guy's office until he kicked me out every single day, right? I was like the annoying SDR who would constantly question and everything because you're basically having access to a multiple seven figure year person who you can just dig in with them and understand how they think. And sales is in general just super conceptual, right? It's not really, at least in my view, but if you study, you figure it out. Like that, that's how the school system is messed up today in my eyes is that if you study, you get good grades, right? None of that shit matters. But if you can understand concepts, understand how people think, that's when you can start really changing both your you know, sales career specifically, but then your income dramatically follows it. So started as an SDR there. The company actually ended up kind of closing their doors and, and, and selling the technology off. Um, a bunch of us ended up going to Outreach. Um, Outreach opened up an office in Tampa. Um, then I was there for roughly a year. There were you know, 50 or so SDRs there. I'm pretty sure every month I was a top or second, you know, first or second person in performance every single month overall, highest performing person during my tenure there. Um, it was a great place to go be, but there was also a place that was kind of capped out on builder type roles, right? There were a lot of great promotions that were available, right? Going into management, going into BNAE, but a lot of those roles in a company like that, you're part of a system, right? You're maintaining a process that's already built. And those are great roles for some people, but not for me. Like I like building and breaking shit. 
and yeah. builders, it's one, it's worth way more to go build or turn something around. Um, but two, it's also just more fun. So what, how, how, from, just to, just to interrupt you, how big were they at that point? Like how big is it in your opinion to where those builder roles are, are slowing down? I think it, it doesn't really, I don't think company size dictates it. I think company maturity, okay. like I think outreach was always in a really good spot in terms of, you know, sales process, especially in the SDRs and sales world right? Because they were selling to salespeople. So for yeah. them, they had a lot of those things built out with executives taking kind of set down roles to go there, betting on the upside, which will hopefully pay off them this year at some point um, of the company, right? So people taking more, taking less senior roles to go to a place like that um, to be, to be part of something, which is awesome. They're part being able to recruit, uh, recruit in that way. So it was less about the company size and more about the maturity of the sales organization. Yeah. Got you. Um, and then, um, Tell me about like, what's your move from there? So you're, you're obviously killing it there. You're probably on a path to a promotion as an AE or an SDR manager, um, but decide against that and, and to go maybe down a different route. So walk, walk me through yeah, like, how you so, find the right builder role. So I was actually out in Seattle as well at the time. So I moved out there for six, seven, eight months at the time. Yeah. And so my old boss calls me, who was, he was my CEO at my first, you know, the, the company before outreach. And he landed a public company where they were, you know, $300 million in revenue, give or take. And they didn't have SDRs ever, right? If you would have asked me, do you want to go manage SDRs ever? I would have laughed at you and said, absolutely not. And he's like, you know, hear me out on this, build the team. And the reason why I was so appealing is that if you take, for example, an SDR manager role or head of a sales development role at a startup type company, you grow according to how the company grows, right? You grow by getting more headcount, the, the company gets funding, et cetera. This company they had, you know, 2,000 employees, 1,200 employees, like whatever it was, a lot of employees globally and no SDRs, right? They were really built on marketing events. They were built on referrals, really built on getting massive clients. They didn't really have the volume piece of it down yet. Um, so for them, it was more so if you build it and produce, right, you will have basically unlimited resources to go scale. Um, long story short, we built a team basically from scratch as the first person in that organization to about 65 people globally. And think got to that point about 15 months, um, teams in you know Tampa, New York, Berlin, London, Melbourne, Japan. So we had you know a global group. Um, for those who think a global role is really sexy, wait till your phone starts pinging at 2 a.m. and at you know 6 a.m. the next morning, right? So yeah. like always keep that in mind as kind of what you want your life to look like. It was an awesome experience in terms of you know promoted a ton of people into leadership roles, into AE type roles, um, global experience in terms of meeting other people. Right, the balancing cultures and definitely do some due diligence if you're going to a new place. Right, that was a learning experience for me going into parts of Germany. Right, so like understanding the culture before you go somewhere just gives you a massive leg up in, in doing so. So man, I wish I should have, I should have prepped for more on my end prior to that. Um, what happened in Germany? It was just more so the not like nothing bad, but it was just more so understanding the culture of how people interact and kind of where they're from and, and that side of it helps you yeah. better get along with people much quicker. Yeah. Right. So the, the dynamic itself was interesting, but it's, it's more so I could done a better job prepping um, for kind of cultural differences ahead of time. So if you're kind of taking on a new global role, like find your, your person who's there, who can help fill you in on the teams, the people, the cultural nuances, right. That'll help you go a long way, your team yeah. much quicker. Yeah. Um, so kind of from there, you know, we kind of left on, on a high, right? Um, we started the stock price at 16 bucks. We left it was in the low 60s. Um, nice. So it was a really good run overall. Um, and that helps kind of feed into my real estate journey as well, which, 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 which I'm sure we'll get into in terms of the kind of taking that capital from there. But from there, um, my same boss reached out. He actually left after a period of time um, to kind of where I am now. And now I lead the mid-market sales org and the global SDR team here at Metric, where it's not as big of a team in terms of the um, number of people, but it's a team of kind of higher level people as well who have been here for a while, which is a really nice experience um, in a very different industry, right? Yeah. Like it's not super sexy, high tech. It is much more so a tech enabled, you know, slash services type company. Um, and they're an older company. Right. So they've been around for a while and been super profitable the entire time where it's much more so efficiency matters and competitive takeaways matter. Whereas 
you know, a lot of other companies, it's much more so just you have Greenfield and you have a lot of money to go spend, go. Right. Yeah. So it's a bit of different kind of, of structure being private equity owned. So, you know, one thing you mentioned at the beginning of the show was, was talking about, you know, the skills that re result in the real world of like handle understanding concepts and applying them to your life or to your career versus, you know, here's the lesson, here's the test, you know, remember these, these definitions and you're going to pass the test. Um, could you walk me through, because when you left outreach, um, you, you would never let a team, then you get into this scenario and you're talking about building from the ground up, talking about building in different, you know, regions internationally. Like, how did you learn those concepts? Was it, was it, you know, by reading, was you, it by connecting with other people? Like how did you figure it out? Honestly, you figured out. So like my take on it, if you're young in your career, find someone who'll give you opportunities to, to, to punch up your weight class. So I use example often, right? Say you're a six out of 10. Right, just say you're a six, and then say you get put an opportunity that requires you to go be an eight. You go figure it out, you're now an eight, right? So I think it's really important by earning credibility and trust with someone who's higher up who will give you those chances to go do that, right? I think that's the number one career seller of people is that they never get chances to go put themselves in a situation where they have to grow because of it. And that's partially their fault, partially leadership's fault, but mostly their fault of not positioning themselves well for leaders then give them more responsibility and trust, right? So like, it's really important not to just go hit your number, but also show you can think like an executive, mm -hmm. where I think that piece of it matters a ton, right? Like for example, think of it as an SDR who's fighting about a qualified meeting for their comp, right? But not understanding this is not a freaking deal any way you put it, right? So like, I think having that, that take on it and be able to think holistically about the organization first versus personal gain you can balance it out in a way that show you understand that that's a bit, probably the quickest way to get more opportunities in doing so. Yeah, that makes sense. So you alluded to this a little bit before, but um, so when you left, was that at live person once you left there and that's when you got into the real estate game or maybe walk me through. So that. I actually got into it while I was at outreach still. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So we were still early in outreach where the SDR commissions were very, very, very high for the industry. Um, you know, the comp plans were, most places I've gone, they've changed the comp plan after I've left um, just because they're, they're kind of caps on what they want you to earn in that plan. Um, but yeah, I started realizing quickly that, you know, I don't the concept of passive income, right? Things that you can go buy to pay you consistently when you're not putting time into it. I started in single family homes. Single family homes are not passive, right? You're, you know, finding deals, which is a pain in the ass. You're managing a property manager, which is just not fun to go do. And it's a lot of transactions to go build a portfolio. So like my take on it was, okay, I'll keep buying these houses. I'll buy three, four, five, six houses a year, and then I'll pay them off. And then I'll be able to live off that. And the amount of transactions and time spend that you're putting into it just wasn't worth it for me. And the biggest thing that I found was that you know, each house, they makes two, $300 a month, right? That, that was fine. But you have a tenant leave at the end of the year. You're, all, you're totally wiped out in terms of your cash flow for that year. The biggest thing that I realized, if you think about, you know, say you're a mid-market sales rep, right? So they make 200 grand a year, you know, half base, half variable. On that plan, so their quote is a million bucks, right? They make, they make 200 grand if they sell a million dollars in deals, right? But if they sell 500 grand, they, they, they probably make themselves 130. But if they sell $2 million, they probably make themselves 400 grand. Cool. So that swing, I'm kind of thinking about it that way, even though I didn't really have it, a true AE type role, it was similar in sense of upside versus performance where that headspace that was going towards managing a tenant for $200 a month was not worth the trade-off of potentially doing performing less well in my current role because mm -hmm. the cash upside was so much higher. But I think people get so focused on making 2% or 3% on a deal or an investment when their portfolio is so small, those dollars are so nominal that doing well in your day job is the quickest path to like actual financial freedom or having the optionality of going to do what you want, especially mm -hmm. in a sales type role. Could you, let's take a step back um, and then we'll get more and more detailed into this. But for the folks that are, are maybe at the beginner level, like what, what has you so interested in this in general? And like, how would you define, if it is financial freedom, like how would you even define that? So, I think financial freedom, like to me, is the optionality of never doing things you don't want to do, right? Like, like building a life, like actually by design. Yeah. Um, I came from a household where 
I had to help my parents financially for a, a long time, right, in terms of, of growing up that way. So the, you know, a lot of issues in the household always stemmed around money, right? Fights in the household were always around money. So for me, I'm like, okay, if I can get this out of the way, right, where money just isn't part of the conversation ever, you're removing one of the biggest hurdles you'll have in life, right? A lot of tension, a lot of fights, a lot of just animosity is built around, is built around money or money-related issues. Um, so if you remove that barrier from it, your list of issues you have in life just dramatically gets cut. Mm-hmm. So that was the first part of it. And then the second part of it is I'm not someone who, who works well for other people, right? Like I ask a lot of my managers, I'm really difficult to manage just because I have a tendency to not listen to what they say, to not do what they want to do because I can go figure it out myself. Like I was always that kid in math class growing up that I get the right answer and I wouldn't show any work. I get into fights with teachers just because they want you to show work because everyone else needs to go show work. So yeah. I think it was a way of freedom from just not doing things you don't want to do. Like my, one of my biggest fears in life is like you look yourself at, you know, 55 years old and you're working a corporate job, you know, nothing wrong with that. But if you're doing that and you're miserable to go support your family or support yourself and like the soul is being just sucked out of you, I never want to be that person, right? Like I call it F you money, not in the sense of like the, the super nice car, the super nice house, but the ability to say F you, I'm not doing that because I don't want to do it. It's unethical. It, it doesn't align my values. It's, I have other priorities that are more important to me. Like that's the biggest goal of mine is having the, I'm never forced to do something because of money or make a decision based on that. Mm. That's a, that's a perfect way to describe it. And I think there's a lot, a lot, a lot of people in our age bracket that feel the same way. I feel like that's a, it's a generational shift. I'm sure there's people that felt that way in our parents range and people that will feel like that in the future, but it feels like a, a very generational shift to me. And so you're at outreach when you, you start getting interested in this um, and you have the comp plan to start making some decent money. You're probably in your mid twenties um, and probably a decently low uh, cost of living in Tampa at the time. Why, why real estate? That's though? a huge why piece not? too. Yeah. So that, me, that's a huge piece it. too that you mentioned is just like the cost of living. Yeah. Like you look at a lot of people, they go from making, you know, I think my first job was making 60 grand, 70 grand, maybe. And that yeah. doubles, you know, for a few years in a row, right? And people start elevating their lifestyle and buying things they just can't afford or shouldn't be able to afford yet. And that's when you start getting in trouble, right? Is yeah. that, you know, I know a ton of salesmen making $500,000 a year who have net worths that are dead broke, right? There's a very big difference between income and net worth, right? There's a massive difference, right? Income means you have dollars coming in for that period of time that you can then go have monthly cost that aligns that. Net worth is how long could you go live on what you have if you stop having any kind of income. And that's a huge, huge difference that people confuse those very often is that, you know, Joe may have a $500,000 income, but he's freaking broke. Whereas, you know, John may have $100,000 income, but he's got $2 million in, in investments that he that makes him an extra hundred grand a year, and he lives below that. Mm. So I think first was just living below your means. And as you start earning more dollars, looking to deploy the bulk of those dollars in areas that help you buy your freedom back versus just the super materialistic things that society pushes you to go get. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's an important, very important disclaimer to make. Um, and then why, why real estate out of, you know, anything else that you it's could. It's not know? emotional. Real estate's not emotional, right? Like stocks, if you look at how they're valued right now, it is super emotional, right? Like you can have a CEO go say something publicly and the stock price shoots down. Real estate doesn't do that. It's also just predictable, right? Like it's, it's a basic human need. People need housing, right? So if you look at it, it's, it's very tangible. You can go touch, you can feel it. And if you take any window over a period of 10, 15 years, it's, it's say for example, a house, right? I don't, I don't do houses personally, but say for example, a house that was a dollar, even if there's a dip in a period of time, within the next 10 year period, it should hit that dollar again in terms of value. So in real estate, as long as you're never a forced seller, and you become a forced seller from a few reasons, right? You're over leveraged. You, the, the property itself is negative in terms of cash flow. If you're never a forced seller by having to go sell a property, it is very tough to lose money in real estate. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of taken the route of, you know, a little bit slower and very much more likely than going for these massive home runs and stock and crypto and just other areas of um, higher risk, right? I've kind of gone the, the more conservative, but very consistent route um, to, to, to get there in that sense. Got it. 
and it and pays then, you so, it, it pays you monthly, right? Like it pays you monthly. A lot of these stocks you have, they just go up in value in your account. You see it, but it's not there, right? The ability to go get dividends or you know dividends in terms of cash flow every month that is massive when you're looking at replacing different bills and, and actually being financially free versus just having a big portfolio of stock that it's tough to live off that. Like real estate is tangible to go live off of. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like your first step was you, you know, we're making decent money. You had a certain amount saved up and you say, all right, I'm just going to go buy like single family homes to start. Right. It sounds like you were, you bought what a half dozen or so of those, like in the first year or something like that. Yeah. I think I got to eight houses. Um, and just each one was a really big transaction, right? In terms of the loan process, in terms of your personal credit, right? Just a lot of things that went into it that I realized quickly just wasn't, it wasn't quick enough to get where I wanted to go. Like, I think a really important thing is having your end in mind of where you want to get to. And for me, I'm like, okay, like I don't want to have to work after a period of time. And the amount of time that I, I calculated would have taken to do that with single family houses was way too much for, what I wanted to do. And also just, it was taking away from something else that I proved I can make more money in doing, right? Like the opportunity cost became too big in terms of performance at work, where it was costing me more money at work than I was making in cash flow from the properties. I'm like, okay, it's time to start looking at alternative options from there. Yeah. And so it sounds like you have like a, when you say end in mind, like if I have this dollar amount and this personal setup, that's, that's what's going to dictate freedom to me. And, and freedom, I think, matters in a few ways, right? I think a big thing for me was that if you have financial freedom in the sense of cash flow coming in, a balance sheet that they, they you know, have to go leverage, you can take massive risks, right, in terms of your time, in terms of projects, right? Think of, you know, the founder who builds a company and takes no salary and takes no compensation, but they can then sell that thing for nine figures on the road, multiple eight figures on the road, where they couldn't have done that they have to have given up massive parts of their company to go scale because they didn't have the capital themselves. So they just parts that allow you the flexibility of one, doing what you want. Then two, once you're stable, you can go take massive, massive risks, right? In terms of projects and in terms of working for equity, right? If you look at any compensation plan, if you ask for your, for your compensation all in, you know, can I go back to the AE example, right? Say, for example, um, you're a commission-only sales rep. You might get yourself 20, 25% with bonuses on top of that. Whereas if you're a, you know, uh, a base and variable compensation, you're probably eight to 12%, maybe a little bit less. So once you kind of hit that equilibrium point of hitting your number, your comp exponentially goes higher being commission only. Yeah. Right. And think about going to a sales interview for a job. If you say you'll be commission only, you want a higher rate. I don't know a single company that, that, that wouldn't hire you if you're competent. Right. So like it makes yourself, it gives yourself more leverage by taking that risk of, if you don't perform, you don't make anything. If you crush it, you will make so much more money by doing structures like that or taking it in equity versus, you know, cash compensation if the company pans out well. And you can go take those bets of like true home run type bets then. So what if, if I'm just breaking this down to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying is, I, hey, I want to get in the right financial position, right, where I've got enough coming in and, you know, I feel comfortable with my investments and savings and whatever, you know, net worth sure. and all that so that you mentioned before, like, I don't have to take that job that I don't want, or I don't have to do that thing that doesn't align with how I want to live my life in whatever way. And instead can work on more interesting things that have high upside because you're not reliant on, you know, what that monthly exactly. paycheck's going to be. You could get in early with equity. You could take commission only sales job that, you know, if you do well, you could get a million dollars or whatever, because you're not relying on if, if it, the worst case thing happens and the company goes you're still zero, fine. you're fine. Yeah. And, and that, that's a big part of it too, is like putting yourself in position to go take risks where if you're just getting by, or if you have a lifestyle that requires to make a certain amount of money, you can't go take risks because you're, you need to support yourself and those around you in that sense. So the ability of kind of freeing yourself to go take big swings, um, that's super powerful. Like to me, I think if everyone was doing work, they are passionate about the world's a much better place. Because people are people actually care what they're doing. Right? I think a lot of people right now are doing jobs for a paycheck. Um, not, not, nothing's wrong with that. But I think if, if everyone didn't have to worry about money and they actually worked on things they're passionate about, the world's a dramatically better place for people doing things that they truly want to do. 
right? Like think about, you know, I'm sure everyone has this back in their mind, like something you do in your job that you love, something you do in your job that you hate doing. If you can do less things you hate doing, like my goal in life is never have a call on my calendar or I'm like, oh, I have to go to this thing. Like <laughs> if, if that, that's a huge goal in life is just to never have things that I don't look forward to doing. Yeah. Um, because I know I like I don't mind working more when I'm doing things I enjoy. I, I know I work harder. I work, work more diligently. I get excited about it. Um, and that's just a gap I think in a lot in society right now is like people don't get to work on things they're excited about all the time. So part of it is it's not the money. It's more so being able to work on things you truly care about. The money naturally comes from there. Mm. I agree with you. Um, I'm curious for for anyone that's listening that's like you know, more of, of a math nerd and thinking about this and, and hearing what you're saying, like, I know there's no perfect answer to this, but I'm curious how, what your philosophy is on, regardless of what your income is, like, do you have percentages broken out? Like, Hey, this is how much you should be saving know. or investing or. I, I don't, um, just honestly, the easiest way to do it is just keep, figure out ways to make more money. People will tell you to go save $5 for a cup of coffee. It's complete bullshit. Like that is so, it's so stupid. Um, sorry, I'm very passionate about this, but it is tell like, me, yeah, tell go, me figure out, go figure out how to make yourself an extra 50 grand a year versus saving $5 a day for coffee that saves you $3,000 a year, right? Like that, it, it doesn't line up, you know, go figure out how to earn. And, and this is for people who are above that area of like living in, you know, their basic needs are covered, right? It's not for you know, someone who's like struggling to get by, that's a whole different conversation of, of financial um, guidance. But the person who's like looking to start investing and start making, you know, start kind of like look, look, make the leap from, you know, okay, like I'm stable. Now look, I'm sort of making investments and allocations there. It's not the, the $5 cup of coffee isn't gonna move the needle for you long-term, yeah. right? It's much more so figuring out ways to make more money in what you're doing, right? So either, you know, like whatever kind of side hustle you may have, I think right now we're seeing a massive shift where people can go become certified in something in you know a few weeks and have an income from there. Whether mm-hmm. people can go push out content in, in, a, in a topic that they're passionate about and sell it you know virtually, right? There's some different avenues to go make income right now that your focus should be on that side of it versus how do I cut back? Um, especially cutting back things that you appreciate, right? Like I'm not saying, you know, buy the car that you can't afford, like buy the necessities that you need to have. But if there are little luxuries, like a cup of coffee that actually you enjoy, go buy the cup of coffee. Like that's not going to make a difference in your financial well-being at all. Um, yeah, like finding ways to make more money versus cut back um, and cutting back with like novelties, not cutting back with, you know, don't buy a car you can't afford, don't buy a house you can't afford, don't buy things that, you know, dramatically hamper you in that way, but yeah. also look at, figure out ways earning more money is always the quickest way versus look at a save more. And my take on it too, is like, if you are in a position where you're, you're working your ass off and making good money and this and that, and you, you find yourself questioning that $4 coffee, then like, there's bigger issues. Then what are you, what are you working so hard? Yeah. for? I can't even, and I find myself in that position because I can be too stingy for my own good sometimes and um, I'll, 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 ta- I'll have some internal dialogue be like, dude, are you serious? Like you, you just closed that deal last week, but you can't get a fucking Starbucks today. Like just give yourself a break. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm the same way. There, there's a few things like there's a lot of things I don't spend money on, right? Like I, I don't wear designer clothes. I, I don't buy, you know, super, super nice stuff. I buy a car, like a car that I can afford multiple times over. Um, but more so like, convenience i'll pay all day long for convenience yeah right and i'll pay all day long for comfort like those are two things and then food right like i i love going out to eat and doing that but other than that like i don't really spend much money in a lot of things that don't bring me future dollars as well like i get much more exciting much more excited writing a six-figure check to go invest into a project versus going to get a new car right yeah. like that excites me far more so um i'd also just have massive stress looking at a car payment like that even if i can afford it like it still just makes me a little bit sick yeah i hear you i hear you exactly um how do you what advice do you give to people that are starting and are expecting like this whether it's real estate it's stocks crypto i feel like the biggest issue is always expecting like short-term wealthy rich results versus long-term wealth could you just talk about the mindset there 
so if you're looking at stuff that's short term, right? Like there are a ton of people I know who, who do well in the stock market and crypto. The, the shorter the term of a project you're looking at, the higher the volatility and risk you're taking on. So if you're you know, younger, if you have disposable capital, right, like go for it um, in terms of your portfolio, but also understand too that the bottom can fall out of those things all day long, right? So consistently, you know, if you look at baseball analytics, I'm a huge baseball geek, right? Like walks and singles over a period of time, if you never strike out, like you'll be in a really, really good spot to have a chance to win each game. Right. So like as long as you don't kind of throw yourself on the boss where you can't keep going and looking at investing. Um, but yeah, like you really can't have a short term outlook on anything. I think your strategy can flip as you get older. Um, like, for example, I managed my, my mom's portfolio for her. And right now she's probably three to five years from, from retirement. So right now we have her money in some, you know, high growth type stuff in terms of our real estate projects. But then that flips once she retires to more of a cash flow type play, right? So kind of looking at understanding where you are, right? When you're, you know, younger and starting out and starting investing, you should not care about cash flow at all, right? You should much more care about growing your principal balance longer term than flip it over to a cash flow play. And what I mean by that is that having a larger and larger overall amount to go invest with down the road, then it's a lot easier to, to flip it. Right. So say, for example, you have, you know, a dollar today and you can make, you know, four cents on your dollar every year. But you also have upside of, you know, 15 cents after a few year period per year. Right. So basically averaging out to 19, 20 cents per year on your dollar. Right. Doing that or you can go get 10 cents on your dollar every year. But so like you look at, a, you know, a five, 10 year horizon, say, say a 10 year horizon on that model. The person who puts a dollar in, will have four dollars at the end of ten years, making the four cents per year on the on the upside at the end. The person who put the dollar in, taking ten cents per year, will have two dollars at the end of it. So for them, they had more yield, more cash flow in that period of time, um, but their principal balance is half. So for them, right, that's important if you're retiring and looking at you know living off the cash flow. I think an important thing is, is looking at the overall return you can go get that's still very stabilized if you're younger and starting out. Because then down the road, you see that save the $4 now, that pays you 40 cents a year if you flip it to the to kind of, kind of the, the, the 10 cent model. But if you only have the $2, it pays you 20 cents a year, right? So you look at it in the sense of you can build yourself a lot better cash flow for when you need it. So I think the important thing is understanding when will you need it. And if yeah. you're a you know an AE or an upcoming SDR, and you have a trajectory of, you know, I'm going making from 80 grand this year to 150 now that I'm promoted to an AE and I have, you know, some good years left of earning, making sure you plan accordingly for that and looking at when you need cash flow and when you don't will allow you to have better yields, like yields overall. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the last thing I have before we get into some rapid fires with you is um, what's your take on some of the new. Um, I don't even know what you would call it, but I guess like a real estate investing platform like Fundrise and some of those where you can kind of buy shares of, of different like real estate properties. What's your kind of take on that for maybe beginners? So I like them in the sense that they're, they help with accessibility, right? In yep. terms of someone who only has X dollars to go best, whereas a lot of our projects have much higher minimums to go invest into them. There's also a reason they have that. It's just because... Um, you're getting better returns and better deals in investing in private placements versus investing in um, kind of crowdfunding type platforms like that. So you're going to get less returns doing so. You also have better access. Um, your upside is dramatically capped investing in a company like Fundrise, right? They're basically structuring most of their deals as debt, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're getting kind of fixed rate returns, um, maybe some marginal upside. But the, the true path to go when looking at, you know, placing your capital is private placements, right? That um, your equity, you get much more equity in deals for doing so um, versus kind of going the institutionalized route. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's helpful to know. Um, all right, let's hit you with that. You know, go ahead. Yeah, it's something that, that actually we're working on right now as well as looking at how can make investing more accessible. So if you look at a lot of our projects now, we, you know, minimum check size, about $25,000 to invest in one of our projects today. We're looking at optionality for people who haven't reached that status yet where they can go write a check for that and, and you know not need it in a few year period for you know lower amounts to go invest into. 
that are much more competitive return wise and equity wise in these projects versus a fund rise or a you know, yield shoot or something like that. Just because I think it's really important for people to understand the optionality they have in investing versus having to go put money into, you know, just, just a giant system like that, that really is an investor first with how they structure things, right? It's much more of a technology platform versus truly a real estate investment um, vehicle for, for wealth and freedom. So why don't you, we uh, talk for a minute just about Silverman Capital and about, um, I know you, you mentioned a little bit there, but just like an overview of like what exactly you're, you're doing in the market. Yeah. So if you look at it, kind of um, why I started in single family was just, I didn't know better, right? That was what I knew. That was, you know, simple at the time. So I spent a ton of time doing research on how can I actually invest passively where I'm not getting calls, I'm not getting bothered, right? It's truly hands off. So what I found was syndication investing, right? Think of it as fractional ownership into a larger property, right? And these institutional properties where they're, you know, 30, 40, 50 plus million dollar properties that are very, very recession resistant, where you're writing a check for, you know, 25 to 50 grand, obviously more than that's fine too, into kind of getting a, a piece of ownership into a larger property. And the reason why I like larger properties is that they're valued like a business, right? So if you look at how you value them, kind of similar to a, a company, right? Where you have your EBITDA, right? Think of that as your net operating income. And then you have your cap rate, which is inverse of your multiple. So for example, if a building trades at a five cap, it's worth 20x the net operating income. And I can give an example of a property that we bought last year. It's a 104 unit property in Houston. And between pushing rents up and driving operational costs, we have roughly $200 per month of Delta in that property. So $200 times 12 months, $2,400 per, per unit per year. Times 104 units, about a quarter million dollars of income, bottom line income you can go push into that property. It's very systematic. That property trades at a five cap, which means that $250,000 is worth 20x in valuation. So effectively, you're taking a building that was 8.5 million, making worth 13.5 million when you're finished. So whereas it's very systematic and equation driven as to how you force appreciation, that is, you know, not as tied to the market as single family. Single family is super emotional in purchasing it, right? Think of if, you know, you're going to buy a house with your spouse and they really want the house, so they pay more for it, right? If there's issues with the flooring, like if there's, you know, square footage, right? Like all those things are how they're valued. Whereas this is much more of a business valuation versus a emotional valuation. Mm. I love it. Um, so we'll, we'll, at the end there, we'll, we'll, of the episode, we'll talk, tell people where they can find you and reach out and, and learn more about some of the investments that you've made and, and the properties that you're looking at and things like that. Um, before we do that, want to let the audience know a little bit more about you via some rapid fires, if that's cool with you. So um, yeah. first things first, you're, you're, if people don't have a pen and paper out or haven't for the last 30 minutes, like with everything that you've broken down the real estate game, they've missed out and they probably need to re-listen, but I'm sure you've done a lot of research. We're big learners on this pod. I'm curious, like any books that you'd recommend um, that have been impactful for you, they could be real estate or sales specific. They could be something completely yeah, different. So there's, there's two I really like. So one is the art and science of winning and losing. Mm. Um, which really goes into how people think and how to create competition. So the example that, that's really simple from that book is that say, you know, you, myself, and someone else are running a mile race, right? And say so you run a 645 mile, I run a seven minute mile. And the person running the bus runs a five minute mile, right? You and I, like you'll push me to be better in, in that mile because you're you know, a little better than I am. But the third person who's crushing both of us, there's no competition there because it's so far out in terms of, um, us actually reaching them. Whereas it really is just, just between you and I versus us three. So I think part of it just really helps how understand how people think and how to create environments where there's competition in a positive way that actually creates, you know, growth. And then the, the second book is the psychology of money, mm. which goes into, you know, there's some stuff in real estate, some stuff in the stock market, but really just how people think and how people think about, just money in general. And I think it's a really good read to help get an understanding and a high level of all different kinds of investing, all different kinds of, you know, life philosophies there. Um, but it was really well, like definitely just overall very, very well written. It's one of my favorite finance books. We've talked about it a few times on this pod um, because my takeaway is that, you know, it seems like, you know, people talk about their finances and like on a, on a spreadsheet, like their budget or whatever, 
but it really happens between your ears. It happens in your head. It's the decisions that you make and how you want to run your life and things like that. So I couldn't recommend that book uh, anymore and as well. It ties into like a really common concept too. Like people buy emotionally and they rationalize with data. Yeah. Right? Like it, and if you're in sales, you are selling on emotion all day long, unless you're in like a super, super transactional type sale. Yeah. Anything that's, you know, upwards of five, $10,000, like it is an emotionally driven sale. Yeah. And then, and, you help, and then the data helps people rationalize the decision they've already made in their head. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, how about other learning resources? I don't know if you're a podcast guy, YouTube, uh, newsletters, LinkedIn, like where else do you learn? Yeah. So actually my, my good friend runs, runs a podcast on, um, mostly on, on multifamily real estate and a lot on just real estate in general, uh, called multifamily wealth. That that's a great one. He does some solo episodes too, kind of walking through the market and just different strategies there. Um, definitely a podcast person. Just it can get repetitive at times in the real estate industry. Yeah. You hear a lot of the same people over and over again talking. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a good one. Okay, awesome. Um, what goes on in the Sam Silverman headphones, like on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever? Like when you're listening to tunes. So there's a, a wide range, right? Like I grew up with my mom. So we have like jam bands, you know, Maroon 5, you've got the Bare Naked Ladies, and then you've all got like old school hip hop, right? Like I grew up when it was like, you know, early 2000s hip hop. So you have Nas, Biggie, like oh, old let's 50, go. Um, Jay-Z. Yeah. Then basically I'm pretty, I'm pretty open music wise as long as it's not country. You yeah. know, going to play baseball in Florida, it is a lot of country and I'm kind of tapped out there. Um, so most things such country I'm okay with. I love it. I love it. I could, uh, I could talk nineties slash early 2000 hip hop for a long time. Yeah. Um, all right. Who's your, your favorite. We talked about Tom Brady earlier, said you're a big Yankees Knicks guy. Who's like your number one athlete all time. So I grew up pitching. I was a lefty. Like I, I replicated, um, Koufax and Pettit. Yeah. Um, those were two guys I, I watched for a ton. Um, and then Knicks. We've had some really bad years. Like we've had some really <laughs> painful years to be a Knicks fan. So the loyalty is definitely tested. Um, from like a pure entertainment value. Like I used to go to games as a kid, going to see Nate Robinson, who is you know five yeah. seven on a good day. And warmups was always awesome. Um, but no, Knicks. We we've been through some really really bad years. I didn't know if you were gonna drop like a Latrell Sprewell on me or something like that. That's like oh, way yeah. way back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I definitely have a screwball jersey in, in my mom's, in like my room, in my, in my mom's place still. <laughs> That's great. hilarious. Yeah. That's great. Um, all right, my uh, second to last question. Who next would you want to see come on the Millennial Sales Podcast? So from like a what lens, like from the sales side or from investing side or just in general? It could be, it could be either. It could be both. Huh. I think there's, so I think you've like a lot of big names in LinkedIn who have kind of just started pumping out content. Yeah. Um, but I'd say people who go just, you know, I don't have an exact name for you. I can probably do some research for you after this and give you, give you some, some, some names, but I think people who just go against the grain with how they think, right? Like yeah. I think more and more it's becoming okay to be rebellious with thought and you're getting rewarded for it in terms of engagement. So I think people that, have legitimate points of view with data to back their decisions um, that go against the you know common theme of for me education is a big topic right now. Like I mm-hmm. think going through you know people who didn't go the whole four year degree route, people who may have gone to like a praxis or you know a different type of education course um, where they went to be an SDR right away, they went to be an eight year right away, and starting that eighteen nineteen versus going the traditional route of um, going to a four year degree and then getting a job. So yep. I think people kind of fall into the category of doing things a bit differently that way and helping show other people what their options are, are so valuable to have in communities versus the societal norm of you have to do this and then this and then this people yep. who have kind of created their own path and shown others that path, I think are, are great guests to have. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. A few names, um, that come to like, cause there are a lot of people that, that do follow the same. A few that came to mind when you said that, that I've, I've had on one is definitely Chris Rudigrop, who's the CEO of Sendoso. He's the only guy that I, or person I know that went from AE to founder of a SaaS company in one move. 
um, which yeah. is really against the norm. Um, there's a few others. His name definitely came to mind, but that's I, I definitely agree with you. Um, and honestly, it's it's like you look at those those people who do that. Honestly, half of it is having the you know the the stomach to go do it. Yeah. Right. Like there's a ton of people who are in corporate jobs from now who can go do their own thing all day long, have the competency, have the ability to go do it. But they just not, they just don't have the stomach for it. Where I think that's a big piece of it is what level of risk you'll take and things like that. And ties to what we talked about earlier, putting yourself in a position where you can go take those risks. I think we'll see a lot better work collectively in society for people who are financially free, who can then go work on what they truly care about. I couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, so if folks want to uh, learn more about Silverman Capital, if they want to hit you up, if they want to um, invest with you, buy with you, uh, you know, have a Zoom coffee with you, whatever it might be, what, what's the best place for folks to uh, connect with you? Sure. So I'm, I'm super active on LinkedIn. Um, and then my website is just silvermancapital.co. Um, my cell phone number is 917-575-3523. I'll forever keep my, my New York number as long as Verizon lets me. <laughs> I, I hope that there are some good cold calls uh, that end up hitting your cell phone. If so, let me know. Uh, and I yeah, do, and, and if you do cold call me, like, so I'll be very transparent, spit it out. Like I'm not a person like don't go build rapport, like spit it out. Um, otherwise, that call will be very short. So, um, yeah. I'll but you take them. You'll take a cold call. Yeah, I'll take them, but like get to the point very quickly. Um, going through the whole song and dance and like, hey, who is this? What do you want? Like, I will give you a chance though. But 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 yeah, yeah. That's just good. That's just good advice for anyone cold calling. I think. Um, Sam, I appreciate you coming on, man. This was great. Yeah, Tom. Thanks for having me. Thanks for checking out that episode. Start of the year. Let's kick some ass again. One of my goals for this show is to get as many subscribers uh, wherever you're listening here uh, on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, et cetera. Subscribe, leave a review, and then hit me up on uh, LinkedIn, Tom Alemo, uh, or any of my other socials at Tommy Tahoe. Look forward to connecting with you there. Peace.